Welcome to the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast with your host, Mr. G. For those about to learn, we salute you. Hello, party people. Thank you for joining us today on the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast, where we are changing the world one classroom at a time. That classroom is your classroom. I'm your host, Jared Gellert, Mr. G. And today is a special episode because we are finally venturing out of this world of traditional educators and getting into this really cool and important realm of untraditional educators. Because our guest today is Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. And Alexander is very much an educator. He is very much a teacher, but not in the classroom, a teacher in life. And Alexander, I follow him on Twitter. He just gives so much wisdom and insight and great advice on how to live a a life with purpose and with passion and with fulfillment and all the things that we want for our students and for our children. So Alexander and I, we had a fantastic conversation. We got into so many different things. We talked about intuition. We talked about purpose. We talked about archetypes. And we talked about how to really hone all of these different skills and all these different ideas and bring them out in your classroom and help your students bring them out in themselves. So this is an episode where we don't just get into mentality and education, but we get into physicality, we get into spirituality, we get into psychological things, and there's just so much here that I wouldn't be surprised if you listen to this episode more than once because Alexander is just a well of wisdom. And everything we talk about here is really, really useful for life, for the classroom, for raising kids, all the things that we come to the Punk Rock Preschool podcast for. So I'll jump right into it here. And here is Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. Hey, Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. I am super excited about you being here as a guest because you are a voice that is outside of the traditional educational sphere, but nonetheless, you are still an educator and probably one of the most important educators, especially on social media. So just following your Twitter account, it's unbelievable how much wisdom that you dole out on a daily basis. And I'm just hoping you can introduce yourself to our audience and tell everybody what you do. Uh, thanks for the intro. <laughs> That's very, uh, I, I appreciate it. Um, Introduction for myself. So my name is Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. I, I, as of current, I work for myself. I have an email list that is essentially a business that operates around improving people's mental and physical well-being. Uh, I've been a personal trainer. I went to college years back for a choreography degree, liberal arts degree. Worked in the online sphere uh, as a writer. Worked for different companies, helping to grow their brands. Uh, work for a few brands actually, have been a sort of an understudy for various people in the fitness industry, have worked independently myself, started a business with a few friends, which didn't fail, but I left that business. And, and now currently I'm 29, I work for myself. And I essentially, I can I'm, I consider myself a professional writer. Uh, you know, I, I create content, I write every day. I have a whole line of products that I, uh, you know, the, the people I invest in. So I I've kind of, I would say I would it sounds perhaps arrogant, but I, I'm self-made at this point in the sense that I work solely for myself. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't anticipate doing what I do now, 
but it's sort of this been a situation relative to how I grew up in the the late ni- the late nineties to the twenty first century, and how the job market has changed, and how achieving financial independence has really really changed. So that's uh, I, I suppose the relevant history about myself. And then the other the other thing to add in would be um, I'm pursuing a professional ballet career at the moment, or for the foreseeable future. So that was my uh, big goal throughout my twenties to be able to financially set myself up to have total independence and then be able to pursue my art full time. That's awesome. And I think that a lot of kids and teachers can hear that and really relate to what it is to be successful in the 21st century. And it does include financial independence and it does include pursuing your passions and even using your, your business and the ways that you make money to be able to pursue that passion full time. And I think that one of the things that I really want to get into is the idea of health. And I love that on your website, it has in big, bold letters, a really powerful question, really simple question, which is, are you healthy? So what does health mean to you? Because I know from your writing that it's, it's much more holistic than simply exercising or eating right. I know that all goes into it, but I know particularly your philosophy that mentality equals physicality with a mm-hmm. mix of spirituality thrown in, uh, that all combines into health. And I'm hoping that you can really expand upon that and, and let the audience know what health is in, in that holistic sense. I would say the broadest definition I could assign, you know, sort of you know, to answer the question, you know, what does it mean to be healthy? It is when your freedom to do what you want and your ability to do what you want and your means to feel how you want when all of those things are in alignment. So you can, you can do it. You, know, you can, you can act, you can have the capacity to, and your, your, your mental well-being, let's say, those things are lined up in such a way where they are congruent with one another. That would, that would be a healthy person. That would be someone where we can see them and you know, perhaps hopefully someone has a model for this in their life where they can look at somebody and they can say that person is living their life on their own terms. They have the energy to do so. They have the mental wherewithal and the mental robustness to do so, and they seem very content. Maybe – yeah, you know, I'm not talking about you know superlative divine happiness, where you know the point of life is to be as happy as possible. Um, that's a whole another subject you're into with it, you know the the false pursuit of happiness. But the, the, they have contentment. They have contentment because who they are and what they do and how they do it, those things are not out of order with one another. And if you have that, then you know by I'd say by reasonable estimation you are healthy. If you don't have that, which is the case for most people, do not then your life is always going to be working against itself in some fashion or another. You, you will always be working against yourself in some form or another. So from there, you know, as a coach, as an educator, as someone who's out here trying to make a difference for young people and help them get their lives on track and help them so their lives aren't working against, each other, working against themselves, mm-hmm. what are some of the biggest red flags and some of like, the most common issues that you see um, in the way that kids are being raised in 2018 and what is not being taught to kids or even to adolescents or even to young, you know, young men and women in their adulthood, what is not being taught that needs to be? I, I would say what is not being taught is developing a sense of intuition. And I know, I know that's very meta, but what I have seen in my work the last nine years, and I've worked with a very broad range of of age groups. I've worked with, I've worked with kids as young as seven years old. I've worked with adults in their eighties. I've worked with a big demographic mix, but what I've seen happen in the last, you know, in nine years of my career and just from my own upbringing in the 1990s to today 
there's there's a lack of intuition. And when I say intuition, intuition, the sensibility where are we raising people who can make decisions for themselves based upon their own well-formed personal values? So are you living according to what you feel is true? And I, I don't mean absolute truth, whether you know, we're not questioning, does gravity really exist? Let's accept that gravity exists, fire is hot, that you know, water is water. But are you living in, the, in truth to yourself? You know, and how do you do that? You have to develop your intuition. How do you do that? You have to be allowed to make your own decisions. And you have to have the confidence to make your own decisions and at times fail. And intuition is not a perfect mechanism, an instrument. Intuition, I define it as, you know, that's a very broad thing, what is intuition? Intuition is what, is what I believe in, and the, the scientific and clinical and psychological evidence would support my assessment of this. Intuition is the inherent mechanism of the human mind where over the course of your life, through all of your experiences, through all of your, through all of your upbringing, through everything that you do, your body develops a subconscious decision-making instinct, which is a, it's, it's, it's an emergent property, you could say it that way. Mm-hmm. It develops a subconscious instinct, which is the accumulation of everything you've ever done, you've ever seen, you've ever been exposed to, every data point in your environment, in your life. And from that, your body is able, you know, your body and mind is able to develop this instinctual mechanism where it can sense what is right, it can sense what is wrong, it can sense what you should do, it can sense what you shouldn't do. That mechanism is your strongest is your that mechanism is your strongest mechanism for truth and being true to yourself. What has happened since the 1990s and even arguably before that, much farther before that, but what's happened in the last few decades is because we have grown up in such a socially conforming environment with, you know, the American dream is still very prevalent. The idea that you will go through school and you'll get good grades and you'll go to college and you know, a job will be waiting for you in some regard or another since, you know, various charts and statistics are held up. You know, they certainly were when I was going through school where, you know, I never heard the word entrepreneur until I was 25. Right. Uh, but, you know, it was held up and said, you know, if you get a degree, you'll make a million more dollars. And, you know, it make, it puts you in very much into this hourly work for work for the hour mindset. Uh, you know, so we, you go through that in the future in a way, like I said, it's very pre-planned. It's very plotted out. And then as the economy has changed, as society has changed, as technology has really changed the meaning of what does it mean to work, what does it mean to create value, we've seen how that pre-planned Americana dream has really, it started to, it started to crumble, it started to dissipate. And, you know, a college education today is not a, a guarantor of financial success the way it was maybe 30 years ago. Yeah, it was a very short window where you could say that that was reliable. What does that mean for intuition, though? What it means is that we're still raising our youth, we're still raising kids within this mentality of the future being pre-planned and being very reliable. And we're not creating autonomous people, we're creating dependent people who are very reliant upon the state, very reliant upon external systems, very reliant upon... Yeah, essentially being led and being told what to do. That's the emphasis I make a lot of times to the young people where, you know, especially on Twitter with my emails, uh, even for adults, you have to have the impetus and the internal drive to not only make your own decisions, but be willing to experiment. And that means collecting your own data. That means taking a more objective viewpoint. That means considering other perspectives outside of the one you were presented with. Um, and that's very paralyzing for people. And I, I realized that the, you know, sort of the core root of it is that people's intuition to choose for themselves is very poorly developed. 
we, we want done for we want done for us A and B solutions to A to Z problems mm. uh, and A, A to Z dilemmas. It's either this or it's that. That's you know, and that's characteristic of the human mind. You know, there's a reason you know we evolved that way. It's, it makes it very easy to make decisions. If I tell you there's only a, a right or a wrong. That said, however, we live in such a vastly changing society that on any given day, being up to date today will have you outdated three years from now right. with technology, with the current, um, you know, not, not speaking politically, but just the current social climate of just things that are happening, uh, you know, the direction that the future is going in. So you have to be able, in a sense, to see into the future. Uh, but, yeah, but that requires a whole different set of skills and domain of subjects to study. Yeah, that's understanding psychology. That's understanding evolutionary biology. That's being taught history, not in the sense of this is what happened on this day, but this is how people have behaved, and this is human behavior, and this is how behavior has consequences, and consequences has consequences. Yeah, that, that's being taught science in a manner that is applied science. That's being taught mathematics in a manner that is again, you know, applied mathematics to to understanding finances, to understanding investment, to understanding financial health. So. The, the separation of education from application yeah, and the separation of intuition from future decision-making, those things put people in very fragile places. For sure, yes. The, the, sanitation, the sanitization and the social conformity and all these types of things that – I mean they exist in schools – Big time. Like the things that – I didn't hear you – I mean I heard you mention you know, math and science but like – not in the traditional science, math, English, social studies, kind of like these are the building blocks of your future. They're really not. And, and the, the building blocks of the future are kids being able to find passions, to experiment, to act in ways that where they might fail, but that's how they learn, you know, in an, more of an, in an anti-fragile way, um, mm -hmm. which I know you're a fan of that book. I'm reading it right now. And there's a lot of really interesting parallels that you can bring from anti-fragile into education because how fragile our system is in developing kids that once something goes off track, once something doesn't go as planned, it becomes like an existential crisis rather than an opportunity for them to be flexible and adapt and to learn. Instead, it becomes like the environment is attacking them, not the environment is assisting them in, in learning. Um, and so from there, I think that this, this segues nicely is that another line from your website that I love is that the number one reason for stagnation in life is a lack of purpose. And mm -hmm. I know you mentioned that, you know, you're practicing to pursue ballet. And I, I think I read somewhere that you were sidelined by injuries um, when you were first practicing in your early 20s or in your teens, going to be a ballet artist. But you didn't let that slow you down. Because, you know, one, I know you're the opposite of the kind of person that feels sorry for yourself uh, when confronted with something like this. But I imagine this was still a difficult moment for you when you had to, you know, put the ballet on the back burner because of injuries. So I'm wondering what lessons you learned from that experience and how you were able to pivot to the great work that you're doing now without losing your purpose. Because that's really what the question is about is what, you know, how can kids find a purpose and then... How can they stay focused on that purpose even when life kind of throws uh, some unexpected challenges their way? Yeah, purpose is a, that's a good question. Purpose is an interesting thing. Um, when, when I was, uh, this is such, it feels so long ago now, but when I was in school, you know, I was, you know, I was K through 12. Um, I, I was 
good at everything I ever tried. So you know, it, it it was a situation where I was I was the type of student where I was never inclined to work very hard, or really not even work hard, but just to work um, because I found everything to be easy. I found everything easy. There was no subject that ever really baffled me where I don't get this. I've, I've never I have never struggled to learn anything, mm-hmm. and that made me made me lazy. You know, for some some kids that makes them very you know, driven and motivated, they want to, you know, achieve. It just made me lazy. I had that type of contrarian personality where because everything came easy to me, I didn't see the inclination as to why should I have to work at this. And at the same time, you know, my, my running joke in high school was that no one's paying me for this. <laughs> you know, I always, yeah, you know, I always said no one's paying me for this. And I, my, my contrarianism made me very skeptical even then of the as I call it, like the Americana dream layout as to does it really matter that you're you got to get good grades. Does it really matter that you have to, you know, have a four pound GPA? Because I, you know, through my own research and through my own exploration, I realized that the vast majority of people who seem to be very wealthy and very successful, they never mentioned school as being a, really much a thing for them. Um, if it was, it was just a step in the journey. It was not something that was, you know, their whole life. But when it come, came to purpose, so I was good at a lot of things, you know, had I been, uh, you know, much more rational and logical, I would have pursued, you know, a degree in engineering or, you know, neuroscience or, you know, something that was, you know, hard science subject, a STEM subject. But as it was, I discovered, uh, I just discovered dance. I discovered ballet when I was about 16. Um, and that was the thing. That was the thing where I, it was, it was beautiful. And I, it was a feeling of being put in being put, in, being put in contact with infinity, being put in contact mm-hmm. with something that's divine and its beauty, and I have always worshipped beauty, and that is what I want to do. And for those who are, and say, I, I know I have an artistic personality that way. For those that are artistically in, inclined, oftentimes purpose is something that you find, you know, to somewhat rhyme it. Um, you know, if you're inclined towards the arts, you will find purpose because you, it will happen that you will come across a thing that resonates with your soul in a way that is hard to quantify and hard to express, you know, truly adequately in words, it will be the thing that makes you feel alive, the thing that makes you, what I say, puts you in touch with intuition, puts you in touch with, with your perceptions and with seeing truth. And that will be the thing that you want to do for many other people. I'd say, you know, cause I, I, I can't say for certain how many people are, you know, truly artistic in their personality. Um, you know, everyone, everyone has artistic instinct, but for the people that truly have that, as I, Part of their identity, they're probably you know, maybe 33% of the population at most, probably less, probably around 16. Um, yeah, but for everyone else, finding purpose, you have to develop yourself and you have to be willing to explore different experiences and put yourself in the different scenarios. You know, that's something that I think education does poorly at this stage where mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've characterized finding purpose where, you know, how do you find purpose? You know, so that's a very big thing. It's, it's a fun question to ask, you know, like a kid, but how do you expect a, a 15, 16, 17 year old, 18 year old? To find purpose. I think if you put someone through, there's kind of four integral experiences, and, th- and this this relatively aligns with big five personality research. This is not just me making stuff up out there. Um, but if you put someone through four experiences, where the first being a leadership scenario, where you have you put someone in a position where they have to be responsible and manage others, and the well-being of others and the performance of others. So that's you know that that reveals a lot about personality. That's number one. If you put someone in a competitive scenario, so you know, obviously sports are you know usually the avenue for this, and that still exists thankfully. But you put someone in a competitive scenario where they have to warrior up, so to speak, 
and they have to win and they have to try to beat somebody or someone else or a team. So that's number two. If you put someone into an intellectually challenging scenario, and this is very broad, obviously, but intellectually challenging in the sense where you make them do something that they are knowingly bad at, you know, whether whatever kind of subject it is, but something that is of extreme difficulty, mm-hmm. extreme difficulty, where there, but not a choice where okay, you have to do just do the best you can, but no, you have to do the best that can be done, however it takes to be done, because that really that forces you to level up your learning in a, you know, an extreme way. And then I would say the the fourth experience is being purely in service to someone or something else. So you, you could characterize this from a spiritual perspective. You could characterize it from a secular perspective of, you know, go help somebody, go volunteer, you know, not just for the, you know, the 40 hours you have to have, wherever many it is now, but you actually go volunteer and be in a situation where you have more than the people you are helping. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a very broad spectrum of experiences. But, you know, relative to, you know, the big five personality traits and how people develop, I think those those sort of four themes, those four thematic elements, that gives a person the most broadest and deepest insight into themselves because probably throughout one of those four things, and they all kind of interlink together, they will find a particular direction to orient themselves in that that will be where purpose lies. And whether it's a specific job or really what purpose is, I'd characterize it more as a specific kind of work that you do with yourself and likely with others that you find meaningful, since that's, you know, if we could characterize purpose, what is purpose? It's something that we find meaningful and without question, we we find it meaningful. You know, that that is very much yes or no. But those, those, that array of experiences, that will give you, I think, the, the direction you need. Relative to the purpose that I had in my life, I found, you know, I could say I found ballet, I found the arts early. What, what happened in my freshman year of college is I had a really bad injury, uh, ruptured my left hamstring tendon. That took me out of dancing because I had to try rehab. And then a year later, I broke my foot, and that took me out of dancing. I had to try rehab that. But you, you can't do ballet on one leg. So you know, I, I kind of dropped the dream I had, which was of being a you know, professional, professional um, you know, principal dancer. That, that's what I wanted. That's the only thing I ever wanted. So I dropped that, and... At the time, because I was forced to essentially rehab myself, I got very, very into fitness. And I already worked out, and I was already you know, i was already a guy that went to the gym, um, lifted weights. So that was not like a big leap. But, you know, because I had to, you know, repair my body, I got much more in-depth with it. And I realized I, I had a really keen interest in it. Uh, and then, you know, it seemed to me, since I didn't know what else to do, since I realized at the time when I was in school and you know, in college, I... It was right around 2007, 2008, the you know, Great Recession was happening. I, was, I grew up in Riverside County in California, which was the, one of the hardest hit county in the country. You know, something about like three out of ten people lost their homes. So you know, I, I saw that going on around me. I had friends whose you know, their families lost their house. My parents, they, my parents had a, we had a short sell our house. Um, so I saw the crumbling of, you know, of the Americana setup. And I realized that, you know what, we've all been lied to. Like there's something to this, this idea that you know, your house is an asset and a job is security and college is, is inherently automatically a, a wealth building, uh, you know, experience and it's good to, that you do. I realized, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, this was like thousands upon thousands of, you know, ac- accumulating decisions. It wasn't like a, a big aha moment where I see the truth now of the world. Um, it was just shifts in perspective. But I realized that, you know what, I'm getting a liberal arts degree. This really doesn't have any actual market power. Uh, you know, once I graduate, it doesn't, it's not going to earn itself back at all. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I would still argue that it never really has, 
I realized I paid for experience and I realized, you know, being in school, especially going to a state school that I saw, you know, I went to San Francisco State University and I realized that, you know, this is getting during the budget crisis. I realized that the vast majority of people that were getting these degrees, um, you know, various degrees or hundreds of degrees offered, they weren't that useful. And if you actually dive, if you open to the research in regards to, you know, the, you know, the sort of the rise of what I call like the, the degree mill kind of college, which is almost every college now. Right. It, once college education became federally insured and once it became a form of debt that could be bought and sold on the, on the market, you know, uh, bought and sold where it was an asset where the hedge fund could buy it. It, it was something that would became an asset. Mm-hmm. Once it became an asset class, colleges were financially incentivized to create degrees out of everything. You know, if, if you go to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be very generic. You go to uh, Harvard in 1950. Look at the number of degrees they offer. And I, I don't know the exact number, but it's less than 100. Go, go to Harvard now and see how many degrees you can get. Go to any, go to any state school and see how many degrees you can get. It, it's gone up by the dozens. And most of these fields, many, many of these fields, they have no actual job market. They are just, they're subjects of interest. Right. They're not something where, you know, it's, you are going to go create something out, out of it. And I saw too being in college where I realized that, especially, you know, not so much for the STEMs, but for the, you know, liberal arts. And since the liberal arts as to what they were 200 years ago as to what they are today, they have changed dramatically. So I don't say that to be derivative, but it's changed a lot. But, you know, for the liberal arts fields, you know, soft sciences, social sciences, you have people where they go to college. It takes them five years to get their bachelor's. It takes them three years to get three or four years to get their PhD. They didn't go back to school to teach people who are getting their bachelor's. Mm-hmm. It's incestuous. Yes. What is actually being created for society? What is actually being created for the person getting the degree, which is which is productive work? The ivory tower, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the ivory tower academic, the stereotype of the ivory tower, like, you know, sort of, I call it like the, the incestuous, you know, buildup of this entity that is really separate from the society that it operates in. It's absolutely true. I, I met professors who they had never truly operated in the real world. They had gone to a college and then gone back to teach at the college for the original thing they got their degree in. I, I can't say what it was that they were creating for the external betterment of society since the majority of the kids that they were teaching aspire to also be a professor. It was very bizarre to me to, to witness that. You know, these are people where they're not truly participating in the labor force. What they're participating in is this vast collegiate bureaucracy, which consumes, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars at this point. Um, and for a lot of people, for a lot of colleges, for, you know, for American society, certainly, it's not producing people who are improving, you know, the overall economic output of the society. Um, so, you know, getting back to, <laughs> getting back to purpose though, I, I saw that being, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. And it was just, it was not an existential crisis, but it really made me wonder what am I going to do? So, <laughs> and I, I didn't know. I, so I, I started personal training, like I said, because I didn't have any other alternative choice. I realized my education in quotes was not useful really for anything. Mm-hmm. It, it was useful over time because I made it useful because, you know, I learned how to be creative that way, which is, you know, we could get into, but, you know, on paper it was not useful. So I got into personal training, but the, the problem with that was is that I never truly had a passion for it. I love to teach. Teaching I love. Fitness was simply something that I didn't see Wells to do and it had a low barrier to entry, so I'm like, well, might as well run with it. 
Um, and, you know, and ironically, my, because I was detached from it ultimately, I didn't have an ego about it. So my learning was very accelerated with it. And I was, I reached, you know, I originally reached the level of being world class at, at training, at, at physicality with the body. You know, and I still, you know, because I still have clients now that I work with on a somewhat limited basis. But you know, once I started the practice of it, I never stopped. You know, so I, I accumulated, you know, my 10,000 hours, which is actually kind of, the 10,000 hour rule is actually false. It, it's, it's heavily dependent upon the, um, the learning capacity capabilities of the student in question. It's not just an automatic, you have to hit 10,000. Yeah, some I people, agree. yeah, some people hit mastery at, at um, like 2000 or, or 3000. Uh, the guy that did the research on that, I think it was, I want to say something Anderson, I forget his first name. Uh, he's Nordic, but, uh, you know, his, his data that he was looking at, was on music students and, you know, what he found was some people take 25,000 hours. Some people take five. Um, it, it's, it's very variable. The, the 10,000 was kind of the median. But, um, Probably depends but on real- passion, too. Like if you're super passionate about something and you're absorbing yeah. information, then it's like you, it will stick way, way more than something that it's like, okay, I'm learning piano because people are forcing me to learn piano and I want to be classically trained. It's like if you're not – I mean that creativity aspect I think comes into it too where it's like if you're creating things versus like learning how to play the classics you're going to master things quicker the more that you own it yourself and you create it yourself and you write about it yourself rather than just studying and reading sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you keep going oh no not at all not at all well you, you make a good point there with for people that are truly passionate for something you you enter in a state of you know of no mind right you know where essentially you, you take literally your ego and your whole you know um, conscious mind out of the equation and then when you do that, you're, you have your whole subconscious capacity to absorb information, make connections. Yeah, that's why I've realized people that are intensely into something, they learn it so much faster because their brain is processing and you know connecting and synthesizing everything at an accelerated rate. Versus someone that, like you said, is doing something because they have to, and in that case, your mind doesn't get in the way of your learning. But um, but yeah, but getting back to the story though, so I got super injured. Uh, you know, I got into fitness because I didn't know what else to do. I had a successful career in the fitness industry, but I just, I didn't care about it, uh, at all, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing since, you know, for a lot of people, they identify me as like, Oh, you're Mr. Fitness guy. Like I was you're really into personal training. I'm like, not, not really. Um, I, I do this because I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And, and now, I mean, I say that and I still had, I had amazing experiences in my twenties. I, I lived in Hollywood. I worked as, you know, I did the Hollywood personal trainer thing. Uh, I had clients that were actors. I, Traveled to India with a Bollywood client for six months. Um, yeah, I started writing in 2013 online, and I, you know, my write and my ability to write was really what changed the game for me. Where I realized, okay, there's there there's possibilities of this beyond just training. Um, you know, and then I, you know, I can then, you know, relative to the you know the last few years, I basically I wrecked my reputation with it. Where uh, during the 2016 election, got super political. Um, but you know, even with that, I still, I still didn't care. You know, I, I destroyed my whole reputation, like my fitness circles. It didn't matter to me. And then, yeah, you know, I had a, I had a crisis point, so to speak, when I hit 27, where I realized it's been seven years, uh, you know, really since I've been able to dance eight years, even I have not done anything. I, the one thing I want to do, I've not done. Mm-hmm. And it took me well, the kinds of injuries that I had with the, you know, the hamstring tendon rupture of the foot. It takes a human skeleton about eight years to fully regenerate. Um, so you, you have a cyclical turnover of your skeleton. Your bone is being replaced daily. So that's why for a lot of you know, bone injuries, tendon injuries, uh, they're of serious nature. It can take about six to eight years to heal, depending on how severe it is. 
Um, I realized relative to the injuries I had that I actually had been able to fully recover. And I had always been training to try and rehab myself. So I, I started training again, you know, like briefly for a few months. Um, and I, at the time I was working for a business that I had was working with uh, some friends on this in Florida. You know, I realized I could still train. I could actually, I could do ballet again and I had the capacity to improve. Um, so I, I started doing that again. I stopped for like another eight months though, after three months, uh, due to a long-term relationship I was in where, um, you know, this is, this is getting you know, more, more personal, but I realized the, the person I was with as much as we you know, loved each other, uh, we didn't have a lot in common and ballet was something that I loved more. And this is very, this is unique to the ballet world. Ballet dancers usually end up with other ballet dancers because no one else gets it. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, people ask me like, you know, is ballet something you just like, it's hobby. I'm like, no, it, it is, it is all consuming. You know, my, my, you know, all of my marketing, all of my content, all of my stuff, it is, I am driven to write and have, you know, the creative output to do that because I do my art. You know, that, that, that in a way is actually secondary to ballet. Um, but you know, ballet dancers are with other ballet dancers because it is an obsession and it takes over your entire being. And the, uh, the girl I was with at the time, I realized that she was obviously not a ballet dancer and she was never going to understand that aspect of me, that part of myself, which was, I would consider fairly integral. And at the same time, in light of us having, you know, like I said, not really anything in common beyond we both like to work out, uh, the relationship didn't work out. But I, I stopped for a number of months because I didn't want to, you know, sort of upset her by doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you make compromises that, uh, you know, take you apart. So then I got back into it the last, you know, so many months, about six months now, and my my work output, my business, everything, everything has never been higher. It's growing constantly. But, you know, finding my purpose and that sensibility, that, you know, that took a while to really hone both how to do that and how to create a life around that. And, yeah, and I find it interesting where, you know, I'm, I'm in, at a stage where what I do with purpose and what I do professionally are somewhat different things. There's transference, but there's somewhat different things. Um, you know, if I was to encourage somebody that's, you know, that's obviously younger than myself trying to find what they should do, you want those to be congruent. You, you don't want what you want to do and what you need to do to be entirely separate. Um, you know, I've made them line up pretty well, yeah, you know, but for a lot of people and certainly the clients I've worked with, it is highly common, highly, highly, highly common that I have, have had people, I've had individuals where what they do for money, what they do for work and what they want to do themselves, totally disparate. Um, and that dissatisfaction never really goes away. You, you can tell yourself that it's okay. You can tell yourself that, that, you know, I'm doing this, but I wish I had done X, Y, Z, but it's always a regret. Right. And then it's always that, especially as you get older, especially as you get older in your thirties, forties, which has been you know, a lot of people I've worked with, there is a very acute sensibility of lost time and a, a lost, a loss of future that it doesn't leave you. Even if you have children, even if you have a very successful career in something, there's still that wish of what if. Um, yeah, and, and maybe what you want to do was truly crazy, but may, or maybe it wasn't, or maybe it was crazy, but there was a way to do it had you fully committed yourself to doing it. So yeah, that, that is something that if you, if you find the thing, whether you find the thing or it finds you as to what makes you feel purposeful, what gives you meaning, once that is found, you have to be all in. You're, you're either all in or you're all out. There's not an in-between zone there. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think that one of the things that I've always tried to focus on whenever, because I have some lofty, you know, lofty dreams for for myself and then for my future kids, and 
I always just try to think about, well, this crazy thing that I want to do or that, you know, my students want to do, like somebody in the world is doing that. And it didn't happen by magic. Like they worked hard for it and I'm sure that they pursued it with everything they had, but there are people out there that do these things. So if they can do it, why can't I, why can't you, why can't these kids? And so I think that that's a powerful thing. And then, you know, I mean, there was a lot in that answer and I appreciate you for being so personal about the answer because I think that's really inspiring. And I think that your authenticity is something that makes you unique. And I think that it's what people resonate. You know, one of the things that people really resonate um, is your authenticity. And so I appreciate you being authentic there. And in that long answer, you know, you don't, don't believe me. I, I can, uh, I can unleash a, a rant and, you know, go off, off on a tangent about, uh, you know, how screwed up the college education system is for a few minutes. So I, I, I appreciate those kinds of things. And I know, you know, our audience, they know that I, I'm, uh, want to do that. So they will, uh, you're, you're right at home here. Um, but another thing that, that you mentioned about like this, you know, I'm going to bring up Talib again because, um, yeah. the, the IYI, like these colleges are IYI factories, intellectual yet idiots. These people that have all these theories in their brain, but they've never actually gone out and practiced them. They've never actually done anything with these theories to see if they work. They just should work theoretically. And, you know, you mentioned how you learned a lot of this stuff with fitness autodidactically. And one of the advantages you had was you didn't have the limitations of a teacher or an expert, you know, quote unquote expert telling you, here's how to learn this and here's how you do this and this is the right way. You know, you read and you researched and you learned on your own and you learned through practice and you tinkered and you probably came up with your own theories that you were actually practicing and that mm -hmm. gave you an advantage. And I'm in a similar boat where I, um, I went to business school and then I went and became a pre-K teacher. And so I didn't mm -hmm. have five years of somebody telling me this is how you teach. So I just taught how I wanted to teach. You know, I taught the things that I thought were important. So I was teaching my kids about entrepreneurship because I didn't hear the word until I was in my twenties either. And that was really, uh, you know, just really disappointing. Um, especially cause I went to business school and there was like no support there at, um, for entrepreneurship. And, huh. and I went to Wharton. So it was like, you know, that's the business school. And it was like, I got there and I'm like, what's your resources for entrepreneurship? And they were like, everybody here does finance. And that was the, that was pretty much the response that I got. And mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing how, how little that is, is nurtured. But at the same time, like being able to almost reject or not have to live within that IYI bubble, live within like the the teacher and the student, but rather the subject and the learner, I think that those are things that allow you to pursue those dreams and your purpose, no matter what it is, because nobody's telling you, you have to go and get a college education and do this and do that and do things this way. And like you said, like your, your reputation, you know, you, you, you nuked it, um, during the, the election. I mean, you know, in California, that's going to be, a you, you do any wrong think out there, you're going to have a, you're going to have a problem, but like going down. <laughs> right. But, but you did it because you were being authentic. And now, you know, a few years later, whether it's, you know, in spite of that, or as a result of that, or a combination of both, like you're, you're doing amazing things and you're very, very successful because you were true to yourself. And even though that's not something that like, we haven't talked about politics at all. And I don't know how passionate you are about politics, but so it may not be like something that you had to get off your chest, but you wanted mm -hmm. to in the moment and you did. And long run, like just living congruently with your values and with your beliefs and with what you want to do, going back to your first answer about 
being healthy is like, you know, being able to do what you want to do and feel how you want to feel, even if it means like, well, I want to say this thing on Twitter and it might not be reactive, but I want to say it because I want to get it off my chest. Like that's powerful in and of itself because living timidly, living scared, living afraid to do those types of things, like that is that is a recipe for unhealthiness and for just not have not living congruently with your values and not being able to see those bigger picture ideas and be able to pursue those passions and find that purpose if you're always worried about what are other people going to think when I do this, when I say this, when I think this. And I think that that's something, you know, ties everything together that we've been talking about um, where people, they have to be free to make their own choices and, you know, maybe face those consequences. But fearing those consequences is something that is is not going to lead to growth, is not going to lead to purpose, is not going to lead to you know, whatever your idea of success may be. Um, and so I know I just, see, I told you I can go on for a little oh, bit of rant on my head. Um, so I guess like, I'm just going to kind of segue because you answered a lot. I wanted to ask you a question about archetypes, but I think you kind of answered it when you were going over those four different situations that people should uh, be put into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'll still ask it just because I really enjoyed the thread that you, that you made on archetypes. Cause I'm a big Huge Joseph Campbell fan, huge Robert McKee story, um, young, like I think all that stuff is super fascinating, super, super fascinating. And then I'm also, I love like the character trait stuff and temperament mm-hmm. surveys and things along those lines because I think that when they're looked at through like a personal reflection kind of lens and not like a business aptitude kind of uh, how can – how do my values align with this business kind of lens more about a personal, like, Hmm, let me think about who I am, what I am in terms of, I mean, the archetype stuff, story is a very powerful thing. Our minds are hardwired for story. And so yeah, if you could just go into the whole idea behind the archetypes and how we can help young people discover their archetypes. Yes. So archetypes, that's a really good question. Archetypes was, it was something that when I was younger, I was very much a comic book fan, extremely so. That's uh, to this day when people ask me like, "What was your biggest influence uh, growing up?" Like, was there a person or influence or philosopher? I got asked that the other day. What's, what's the most influential philosopher? I'm like Batman. Oh, I would yeah. say Alan Moore, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean that was seriousness. I, yeah, I was seriously. A, a Batman fanatic. I read, yeah, and you know, Alan Moore obviously wrote a lot of the Batman, um, you know, from the early 1990s. But uh, Alan Moore picked my bit. Yeah, Batman. Like that was that was a big influencer for me. And and I say that because yeah, Batman is. And I, say, I don't mean that since of all I worship the comic book character, but Batman is an ideal. Mm-hmm. It's an idolized, archetypical hero, heroic figure. You know that's what he is. And you know, in terms of depth and breadth, I would I would argue personally, as my own bias, that he probably has the most depth and breadth of any hero, just because of he is he operates in a place where he operates in hell. And, you know, he's the most humanized and also the most idolized because of that. Right. Uh, you know, what does that mean for archetypes? It, being so into superheroes and being so into the heroic ideal and being very much into mythology from a very young age, I, I realized early on that people operate according to patterns of behavior. And archetypes, what are they? Archetypes, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, Carl Jung who came up with the idea, you could say, but it's, it's always existed in some form or another. An archetype is the idolized form of behavior that characterizes a person. 
So we can have an archetype as, you know, for, for masculine development, we can have the archetype of a king. And we all know what a king looks like. We have some vision in our head that a king has a crown and a king is noble and a king. We, we assign it the set of qualities. We have an archetype for what a warrior is. We have an archetype for what a, a wizard is, a magician. We have an archetype for what uh, you know, a lover is, you know, speaking to masculinity. But we also have an archetype for a damsel in distress. We have an archetype for a, a jester. We have an archetype for an evil mastermind. We have an archetype for a good father. We have an archetype for a brother, for mother, for grandfather, for a grandmother, for, uh, for sister. We have archetypes for all these things. And what you find in studying human history, you know, as I said, human history is not a study of what happened, but a study of how people behaved. You realize that people follow recurrent patterns of behavior and people fulfill these archetype roles continuously throughout all time. So you know, even in the modern environment, uh, Dilbert, you know, the cartoon, if you're, for people that are familiar with that, there's archetypes to that. You know, the office worker, the lowly office worker that's abused and he's having to put up with his out of touch, uh, you know, sort of uh, out of touch and overbearing boss. There's an archetype to that. We, we can identify with that. If you watch the show The Office, which I don't watch much television, but, you know, like The, the Office is a you know, popular show. It's a good example where you have these characters and each person fulfills this little office archetype role. Uh, and I find the archetypes, it's, it's extremely useful for developing yourself because everybody, especially, you know, once you get into the double digits for, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, kids are very keenly aware of, you know, what their interests are or what they, you know, what they'd like to say they're interested in. You know, oftentimes, you know, teenagers are very reluctant to be themselves that way or explore their interests. But you can, you know, teenagers are, are operating an environment where there's a hot guy and there's the hot girl and there's the star athlete and there, you know, whoever's on the bottom of the social hierarchy totem pole um, or social, you know, the social dominance hierarchy. So, you know, these, these state of archetypes, it gives you an understanding of the modern world and, and then you can see it, that, how it comes out in stories, how it comes out in films, how it comes out in television. Um, it's essentially, it, it is the characters that comprise our storytelling. And if you're trying to characterize, you know, an archetype for yourself, and with the emergence, with emerging of psychology and archetypes, which is what Jung really utilized, um, it gives you a model where, you know, whether whether it's MBTI, whether it's Big Five personality testing, um, you can, you know, you can get tested, or you can, you can, I shouldn't say test, you can assess yourself and have some sense for your character and for your being, you know, and, and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's something that it's, it's uh, maybe you get those results, or maybe you do the test and it's surprising to you, uh, you know, maybe it's very, you know, obvious. You know, my, my big five personality testing was not anything um, shocking to me. It basically showed it was it was a very much studying contrast. You know, uh, you know, very high, uh, you know, very low in agreeableness. You know, very high in extroversion. You know, um, it was just this back and forth of like zero percent to ninety-seven percent. Um, you know, but you know, with same thing with the MBTI testing, is that so? Is it scientifically empirically backed? Where oh well, it's a gold standard test and it's one hundred percent accurate. No. no. No, it's an assessment of where you are at that state in time. And it's not to say that it can't change, you know, but that also is not to say that if you're an introverted person, yes, there are definite personality differences. There's definitely cognitive differences between people who are extroverted versus people who are introverted. And that can be very useful to know, especially for a, especially for a teacher. Um, yeah, I would argue, and this is very much more of the, you know, going to sort of like the John Piaget um, school of, uh, you know, practice philosophy, but, you know, he was a, you know, teacher of pedagogy, researcher of pedagogy, but 
he made a point, and this is I'm, I'm really oversimplifying this, where everybody learns to do the same things. So the you know the, the sort of the argument over like differences in learning styles or you know ways of learning, everyone learns to do the same things because obviously right now we're speaking English. So you speak English and I speak English. We understand each other, you know, perfectly, let us say, or close enough where we're able to communicate. It's not like I have a different version of English. If I did, if I had a different language that you could understand, then we would be um, incomprehensible to each other. But everybody learns the same thing. The way we go about that learning, that is personality dependent. So when you have someone and you want, you know, how do we use the archetypes, you know, to improve ourselves? It gives you a sensibility of what you need for your personal development and what you need to further your own learning. You know, and Piaget was very fascinating where, you know, he had the realization and you know, had the, you know, the insight where, you know, children follow different models to all learn a common language and, you know, sort of a common culture and a common dialogue. And, you know, if, if I teach you to, you know, get into fitness, I could have 10 people and I'm going to teach them all how to squat. Each, each one of those 10 people, no one person, I'm going to teach them all differently. Mm-hmm. You know, the way I go about teaching that is going to be different for all of them. When they go to do the movement, though, it's going to be more or less the same thing for everybody. Right. The technique will be the same. The form might look different, but we're all learning how to do the same thing. So I think that's I think that's part of the misunderstanding with learning styles, where this idea like oh you're like you're going to learn differently. It's not so much that you're learning differently. You're learning how to do what you know your peers are doing, but the you know the the, the tweaking and the modification of that methodology that is personality dependent. Yeah, that, and could you assign that an archetype? Yes, absolutely you could. You know, there's a such thing as a, a precocious child and a shy child. You know, there's the, you know, there's the, uh, the wild child and there's, you know, the focused child. But you, and you, you know this from working with, you know, the pre-K at that age. There's a big range of personalities there. There sure is. You know that. You know, mm-hmm. honestly, you, you could assign similarities where, okay, these kids are quiet and these kids are not so quiet. But there, there is... It would be obtuse to say that you can have them all sit within the same setting and they're all going to learn at the same rate. You can put them in the same setting, but the individuation of that, that's going to vary greatly. You know, each of those kids has their own little archetype that they're going to fall into. So I think that that's actually, you know, where the question started and where it ended up, I think that it ended up being more useful for teachers than to say, okay, how can we help kids find their archetypes? Maybe we need to be talking about how teachers can you know, find the archetypes of their kids so they can best teach them. And that squad analogy that you just gave, I think is really useful because you're teaching the same content, but the way that people are motivated, the way that you deliver to them, the, you know, the things that they're going to respond to is going to be different across the board. And, you know, they're, they're probably their tolerance for failure too. Like that's something too, where somebody, you might have to be more delicate with somebody. You might have to be, there's some people where it's like, just go in and, and do it. And, you know, you can be harsher, you can be, you know, more encouraging, all those types of things. It's the same thing in a classroom. So I actually really love where you took that answer where teachers can apply it and say, okay, now, now that I have these ideas of all these archetypes that are out there, what are the archetypes that are in my classroom? And then also as teachers, what are their archetypes? You know, because Mm -hmm. where should they be coming from when they teach? They shouldn't be trying to be the jester if they are, you know, if their natural personality is the king or the queen. And so I think that there's a lot of really good applicable stuff directly for the classroom in the answer that you gave. Um, and then, you know, I had a few questions about just, you know, more 
physical exercise kind of stuff. But, oh, go ahead. but I mean, all right. Well, I was just going to say because this episode has been what I really love about it. It's been a real natural conversation, and you know, it's clear that you love talking about the things that you've been talking about, and so. I'm glad that I asked these kinds of questions to, to bring that out. Um, so I'm going to pat myself on the back for a second there. Um, but uh, I, I think that it's interesting that we're talking more about philosophy and we're talking more about psychology and we're talking more about mindset and about attitude and about um, and then also just about the world and how the world mm-hmm. works and what these systems are. So more, so, I guess, sociology in that way. Um, and so I, I, you know, coming at it from you're a fitness guy and we didn't spend a lot of time talking about fitness. I think that's awesome actually. Um, no, I, I, I never tend to talk about fitness much when I get interviewed. I mean, I, do, awesome. I, I, I have had people where it's like, I want to ask you fitness questions. I'm like, I, I, sure. Why not? Um, but yeah, I mean, like, like you said, it, what, what drew me into to fitness was not the fitness aspect since that's very remedial. I mean, I, I could spend, you know, I, I don't know if uh, audio is the best way to teach fitness. It's, it's very much an applied science kind of field. Right. Yeah, when you referenced Talib earlier with it being anti-fragile and having skin in the game, the thing I realized, you know, relative to physicality and teaching people to be healthy, learning how to exercise, you know, in quotes, um, it is it is a domain of profession where you very, very, very quickly find out what works and what does not work, and it is immediate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I would, you know, maybe not to, maybe this might be a false comparison to compare it to teaching, but, you know, with, with, with training, I have an hour twice a week, three times a week to rot physical change, physical mental change in somebody. My dialogue that I have with them and my movement that I do with them, it has to work. I don't have a high margin for error. I don't have like a year where I can teach the, you know, teach a group of kids and be like, okay, well, some of you are going to be high performers. Some of you are going to be low performers. You know, some of you just, you know, Oh, oh, I hope you're pretty. You know, at least good looking. That's not the situation. You know, I have people where they are at all levels and, I need to deliver them the absolute most that I can deliver within 12 or 16 or however many weeks, months. And I have to be selling myself constantly at the same time since you have to, you know, you have to confirm the sale. And then, like I said, everything I do has to work. I can't spend six weeks with you and then say, okay, I I figured it out now after six weeks. I need to figure out within 20 minutes. I I have that first hour of talking to you. I need to, I need to have a clear vision as to what we're going to do. And I need to be able to, adjust and modify that on the fly dynamically every single time I see you. And I also need to have that oriented towards a direction. Um, and then when I, when I got into training, what I realized is that this is not a technical field in the sense that there is a series of formulas. There are formulas in the sensibility of principles of biology upon which the body is based. But when you're learning, when you're learning how to manage personalities and manage expectations and create a physical dynamic environment for people where they are wanting to learn and wanting to work and exert themselves and make themselves uncomfortable. That, that's not, that, that's, that's not exercise. That, that's, you know, like you just said, that, that gets into psychology, that can, gets into sociology and in relative to the conversations you have with clients. And so anytime you put, anytime you take anyone and put them in an uncomfortable situation in which their, their will and ego get tested, everything in their subconscious rises up. that is tied to that metaphor of being challenged and potentially failing. Yes. And then you have to deal with that. So, that, so yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, so I mean, you know, to just affirm your point, yeah, that, that's why the you know the fitness stuff it never ends up being about fitness; it's about everything else outside of that. So that actually basically answers the last questions that I had because they weren't necessarily about exercise so much, but like they were saying, um, 
you know, one, I think that the analogy actually does hold up between training and teaching, especially what you're talking about is urgency. And, you know, in pre-K, that, that was a concept that was hard for me to understand was urgency because it's like, oh, it's pre-K, like they'll learn a lot of this stuff later on. But then once I started teaching the things that I knew were important and that I cared about and that I knew would get the kids excited and hopefully help them find their passions, then it was like I couldn't miss a day. It was like every day built on the last day and was building towards the next day. And so that's where the urgency came in. And I think that the question that I wanted to ask you was about mm-hmm. how your style is a you know no BS cut through cut through all the nonsense like style where you don't have time like like you just said you know you've got an hour you've got two hours to really help this person so there's not really that time to sugarcoat things and to dance around subjects which is something that we see especially in early childhood where everything is hello friends my friends how are we doing today and there's you know this uh this code word i call it a code word uh developmentally appropriate everything has to be developmentally appropriate which in in my experience means low expectations means mm-hmm. lowest common denominator if the kids are super advanced oh you can't teach like and it's dumb stuff where it's like I would teach my kids 3D shapes and parallelogram and rhombus because it's the same exact concept as learning a circular square. You're labeling a picture. And so mm-hmm. there's nothing higher level cognitively there. It's just that we impose our own like, oh, I didn't learn parallelogram or 3D shapes until I was in third or fourth grade. So we can't teach that to pre-K, but there's nothing that's cognitively more difficult about that. And so mm-hmm. that's something that how you know, what would be your advice, I guess, to teachers about how do they be honest about the world? You know, don't, don't create a world that's going to be like, cause I think it holds kids back when they create this world and this environment that is expecting to be nicer and like less cutthroat than the world actually is not that your pre-K classroom needs to be cutthroat, but you know, how would you describe the way that you deliver your message with that type of urgency? And then what would be your advice for teachers who want to prepare their kids for the real world and prepare their kids for challenges, but they also, you know, they, they're still living in that, I want to protect these kids, they're still kids, let kids be kids kind of thing. Like, you know, my opinion is that the let kids be kids kind of thing is something that a lot of people can't define, and I've talked about that before on here, because um, mm-hmm. it really just means, like, let kids not have responsibility or accountability, and I don't know when you decide that that comes into play. So, yeah, that's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going on and on. I'm oh, making no, it difficult to good. answer the question, so, but you get the gist of it. So, yeah, if you could just speak to that. Well, it's very much a soundbite, um, you know, fallacious term, you know, let kids be kids. Yes. I, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of beliefs we have, which, you know, I've characterized this for in, in any realm, whether it be social, political, spiritual, uh, technical, or, you know, we, we assign our thinking and you know, logical reasoning to just statements, you know, these pithy statements, you know, let kids be kids. okay. What does that mean to have a kid be a kid? What, like, what are the characteristics of that? Right. You know, can, can you develop an argument around that, or at least an exposition? It, it no, nobody can really. It's just a thing you say. You know, um, yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from. There, there's a lot of stuff like that in I mean, really every industry. Um, but you know, relative to teaching, I, I, I take I, I take account of it this way: when I am working with somebody, you are in a safe environment because I'm there watching you. So. Yeah, I'm not being brutally harsh where I'm trying to beat you up with exercise and tell you you're worthless because you didn't take care of yourself. You're in a safe environment. It's my role as an educator, as teacher, to encourage you and to teach you what you need to know. I have very high 
not expectations for people, but I have estimations of people. People are capable of learning far more than they give themselves credit for. The, the human mind, the human brain, the human body is a pattern recognition engine. We are evolved and we are made to recognize patterns. That is what we do. That is what we are. Our body is a, our body is a bacterial cellular stack of patterns on patterns on patterns on patterns on patterns on patterns on patterns. That's how the brain works. That's how the body works. The, 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 the physical form that we have is simply an extension of our neurological processing capacities. You know, the brain can recognize a lot of different kinds of patterns, you know, auditory, visual, thermal, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you know, obviously language itself is a pattern. So relative to teaching, you know, like teaching children, I, I've taught kids in the, the, the capacity of, you know, having them basically coming to like an exercise class and I have to keep them entertained and having fun. I've never found it that difficult, nor have I found it unreasonable to say that most kids can learn a lot more than the adults presume they can learn. What happens is with adults, as adults, we lose our capacity to learn as we age because we become very preconditioned to be set in our patterns and be set in our ways. We, uh, we, uh, what characterizes adulthood versus childhood? You know, childhood is innocent chaos. Everything is new, so everything can be learned. There are no real biases in anything beyond, you know, basic biological behavioral preservation biases. You know, kids get scared of stuff if it's scary, you know, stuff of that nature. Hmm. You know, as adults, what happens as adults? As adults, obviously, we go through a world and we are raised and we are educated and we are brought up and we become, as I said, you know, somewhat settled in how we think things work and how we think we learn and what we are comfortable teaching. Yeah, that's, that's something to keep in mind with educators. Are, are you teaching the kids according to their potential or are you teaching the kids according to your own limits on competency? Yes. Which one? Because I've seen this with teachers where, okay, well, if I only teach these basic things, I know I did a good job. No, you didn't do a good job because you fell short of what the kids could potentially learn. Right. You served yourself and what you are comfortable teaching to your pre and post standards. Exactly. Had you taught more and had to stretch your capacity to teach they would have learned a lot more. So you're implying you're you're putting your limitations and your 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 curriculum limitations on them. Yeah, you know, I I remember having children where I, they were under my charge like five or six at a time, you know, right, you know, five six seven years old, and the the parents were always amazed at like the stuff I could get them to do. You know, and but you know I you know if you like watched a session I had with them, I was extremely patient and I didn't presume that okay if this screws up the first or second time then I guess this isn't worth doing. I took my time with it. Yeah, and the irony to that is in, that in taking my time being patient, they they came to learn a lot faster because they had the expectation that they got from myself is that he thinks I can do this, so I guess I'll figure out a way to do this. Not that teacher, you know, teacher showed me something I can't do it, so teacher says we don't have to do it. Right. So that's something that that I that's like my one of my go-to little slogans that I've come up with for punk rock preschool is that, and I say it often because it needs to be said often, and you've experienced it too in your realm, where potential is only limited by our imaginations, by a teacher's imagination. And if you can't imagine that the child can do something really special, then they're not going to do it. And if you can imagine that and you know that they can do it, then they'll believe it in themselves. And most of the time, they will do it. I mean, you know, you're not teaching them rocket science or anything crazy, but like no. you could push the limits very, very far, way past what, you know, 
quote unquote conventional wisdom says kids can learn, but only if you imagine and believe that they can learn it. And I think that that lack of imagination is something that, well, I think it plagues society, but I think it, it's, there's a bad problem in, in education and really, you know, across the board because of the way that going back to how we were talking about colleges, colleges don't really encourage imagination. They don't really encourage you to think outside the box, to do things differently than how the professor has done them because that professor went to college for, you know, eight to 10 years to be able to tell you how to do things. So how dare anybody question their way of doing things? Mm -hmm. And it leads to a real stifling of creativity, of imagination, of doing things differently, which is oftentimes better, or at least trying to do things differently. Going back to you know your first answer about just having the ability to do what you want and to be able to fail and be able to experiment, be able to tinker. And because we don't encourage that, because we have this system where the you know there's like a hierarchy of knowledge and it gets passed down from the top to the bottom, it's it's not encouraged that people at the bottom can create knowledge and can create something of their own and find new ways of doing things. But that's how progress has been made throughout history and will be continue to be made. So, um, you know, we've been on the we've been on the horn for over an hour now, and I've really enjoyed talking to you, Alexander. So it's been it, it's been great. So I guess wrapping up. Um, you know, do you have any final thoughts that, that you'd like to share? Are there any big future plans? Hopefully, you know, hopefully a book um, that you have in the works. I don't know if you're working on that, but I know you said you love writing and you are a writer and you've got incredible ideas and you're concise and I'm going to stop fawning over you, but I really hope that you do write a book. And, uh, you know, how can teachers and parents find you and connect and hopefully translate the really special work that you do to their classroom? Um, yeah, floor's uh, yours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, final thoughts. I, I, I would just say this to sort of summarize everything we just talked about. Um, a knowledge is bottom up; it's not top down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the modern world is it has this. The modern world has created a hierarchy of knowledge in which we teach it from a top down methodology, and then it creates authorities to knowledge and how things are supposed to be done. It, true, true knowledge, which is applied knowledge, which is learned experientially, that's bomb. That's bottoms up. And if you're going to be a good teacher, you have to create an environment of controlled failure towards competency and encourage that. Um, that said, um, I've, I've had to probably, I have like, I, I, I'm not joking. I, I have five books I'm working on right now. I can't figure out which one to finish first, uh, but I will be publishing one this year. Pro- probably, probably something within the realm of uh, mentality, physicality. Awesome. And how that factors into, you know, the, the bridge between the two, um, which is actually just, it's just a, broad subject to cover. Um, that said, in terms of you know, where I can be found, my my email list on my website, um, that is my primary place for communicating with people. Uh, I email every day, and it's, it's on a broad, broad, broad range of topics. So my website, uh, full name, AlexanderJuanAntonioCortez.com. I am also very active on Twitter, uh, AJA underscore Cortez. You can always find me there. And I have very frequent Q&As uh, you know, AMAs da- almost daily. Uh, then the other place also as well as I am on YouTube now, which I just, just started putting up YouTube videos, but, uh, I do have a YouTube account, which, uh, it's going to have a pretty broad range of, again, of subjects discussed, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the underlying thread through all these things is I guess my primary theme. You, you have to be a master of learning if you want to survive and thrive in the world. Yeah. And that means, you know, what, learning what Le- learning everything. Right. Uh, th- th- that skill of learning how to learn serves you 
no matter what you do. There is no, you know, there's no such thing where it's, there is no such thing where you could say that you know I've, like, that you can improve your capacity to learn, but then it puts you at a disadvantage in anything. If if you can teach people how to learn effectively and give them the you know the, the both the skill sets and the perspectives to do so, their ability to create the life they want, to follow their own purpose, to you know to live to the best of their abilities, it's going to be extremely enhanced. Uh, if you give people only a a singular way to do something, I, the limitations are you know infinite to that. You're always going to be operating at a disadvantage. But uh, yeah, the YouTube channel, Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez, same thing. Um, you can find me there as well. And I just said, my, my recent videos have been on overcoming anxiety, actually, and the power of storytelling. Um, some of what we talked about today. So, But those are the three primary places. You know, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty responsive to messages, so um, I, I get a high volume of emails and things. But generally speaking, if you do hit me up, I will always try to get back to you uh, in a timely fashion. Awesome. Yeah, uh, I'll link to all that in the show notes and uh, hang on after we finish up the episode because I have a couple things that I wanted to uh, to to share with you and see yeah. if you see if you've read them or you know hopefully you have if you haven't then I'll uh, you know make some recommendations. But really, dude, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank uh, you. This has just been you know it's been an awesome episode, a little bit different than what we typically do, but I think that it's one of the most, if not the most valuable episode because of all the broad range of topics that we've talked about and because of how natural the conversation has been. And yeah, I just really appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. So another big thank you to Alexander for coming on the podcast and a big thank you to you for listening to this episode of the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast. So much good information in this episode all about helping our students live their lives congruently going back to the beginning of the episode, and that means giving them the tools and the mindsets to do what they want and feel how they want throughout their whole lives. And like Alexander said, when your actions, when your capacity, when your mental well-being, when they're all congruent and lined up with one another, life is going to flow to you. And isn't that what we want for our students? To give them that sense of contentment with who they are, what they do, and how they do it. These are gifts that are more important than any textbook lesson or state standard could tell us to offer. So again, a big, big thank you to Alexander and a big thank you to you for listening to the Punk Rock Preschool Podcast. As always, follow us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, please leave a review, subscribe to our email list, and definitely, definitely subscribe to Alexander's email list because he wasn't kidding. He sends out an email every day, most of the time, multiple emails every day, and there's just a lot of really great advice really great wisdom in there because believe me, we talked for an hour and there is still so much more that we could have talked about. We actually talked for another 30 minutes after the podcast episode ended. There's just so much that Alexander has experienced and he's gone through. So please sign up for his email list because he gives you everything unfiltered, raw, and tells it exactly like it is. And it's just, it's just a really, really great resource for all things life. So again, thank you for listening. Like I said, please subscribe, find us on social media, do all those things that I always ask you to do because I appreciate you guys so much and I want to be able to keep providing you with this great content and these great people that I've discovered and that now you've discovered and we can all keep learning together. So thanks again and as always, keep rocking.